Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. What do Syracuse basketball coach Jim Beheim, legendary golf writer Herbert Warren Wynn, First Lady Lady Bird Johnson, tree removal, and golf course restorations have in common? Well, they're all discussed in this episode of Tartan Talks. Joining us is Stephen Kay, and this is quite the conversation that goes in a lot of different directions, and Stephen has no problem opening up to us on any topic. But before we get going with Stephen, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. We're glad they've been on board with Tartan Talks for such a long time, and we're glad that we were able to finally get Stephen on the podcast. Well, Stephen, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to have you on the Tartan Talks podcast. And the first thing I want to get to here is you teach a golf course architecture class at Rutgers and have worked with many, many superintendents during the course of your career. Why is it important for a superintendent or aspiring superintendent to have a basic understanding of golf course architecture? By the way, Guy, thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Uh, I actually teach a couple of classes at Rutgers, and I think it helps with the answer to the question. Uh, I mainly started at Rutgers teaching a uh, golf construction class, two of them, uh, in Turf 1 and Turf 2, in the two-year Rutgers Turf program. And over the years, and I've been doing that for many, many, many years, uh, I would always go a little bit into design, and a lot of the students started writing in the evaluations that they wanted to know more about the design, more about the history, about it. So literally started about 15 years ago, Another class to the second-year students that I teach, second class that I teach called uh, Design, History, and Principles. And I get into how golf started in, in Scotland, Great Britain, and what happened when it came to the United States, you know, who were the original famous architects like C.B. McDonald and Donald Ross and Philly Hass. And, and I get into that because I feel that, and I say this, because some of the students love the class, some of them don't. Uh, don't think it's needed. And I go, gentlemen, you're in this program, this two-year term program, to become superintendents. <clears throat> when you're a superintendent and you're talking to your green chairman, you're talking to the, your boss, you know, and they're talking about, oh, the players' championship is coming, you know, uh, TPC soccer. Who designed that again? And they ask you, you know, or, you know, or this, this course called Wingfoot. Who designed that again? And they don't know. And if you never know the answer to that, well, that's not good. You know, you need to be knowledgeable at least about the famous golf courses. You know, this is the business you choose to be in. You know, this is what you need to know. Uh, so I, I think they need to know it just in that sense, so they look educated. But I also think it, they need to know about design, about especially I get into safety. They need to know that stuff when some green chairman says, well, let's do this, let's move this over here, or let's do this. And they start seeing that, well, wait a minute. You know, remember from my class, that might be unsafe to do. You know, maybe we should get an architect in to look at this, you know, rather than just do it. You know, so I think those are reasons why they need to get a little bit of a class. Not, it's not crazy. Not teaching them to be a golf architect. Teaching them to be aware of what golf architecture is and how it can help and how it pertains to a golf course. And that's a great point, Stephen. And one of the things I tell younger people in the industry is that Golf is the common language, right? Like that's the commonality between the people that work on golf courses and maybe the members at some of these clubs. So you better be able to speak that language. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Uh, have you done a project 
where the superintendent's been one of your former students? Have you run into that situation um, yet? <laughs> I would say uh, probably of all my projects I've worked on, and I've worked at, I've done 20 new golf courses, and I've worked to one extent or another. When I say one extent or another, it might be a golf course like Hendricks Field, which we just, you know, resurface all the greens, and we rebuild all the bunkers, and we rebuild all the tees, and, you know, a major $5 million renovation project. Or it might be a, a golf course a few years ago where I went, and we put a forward tee, a forward tee and a fairway bunker on one hole. That's all I did at this golf course was one forward tee for the lady and a fairway bunker. But that's a client. That's a golf course I did work at. So I've worked at over 300 golf courses. So of of those 300 golf courses, I'm going to say 20 to 25% were former students of mine. I've been teaching for 30 plus years. That's fascinating. And speaking of college, I had a chance to, uh, sit with you at the ASGCA meeting during the Donald Ross banquet dinner, and you were telling me about a uh, interaction you once had with a young basketball coach during your days at Syracuse. What do you think whenever you well, see Jim Beheim on TV now? Yeah, well, I, I knew him a little bit because I was on the freshman golf team, and he was our coach. He was our coach, and then it was funny. I tr- uh, our, the, the, A junior, when I was a freshman, a junior at the end of the year, my freshman year, his junior year, he came over, I'm going to be the captain of the team, and I'm going to run tryouts, you know, in September. You can move into the dorm, you know, two days early before registration for class. The dining room is not going to be open, but, you know, they'll let you move in, tell them you're trying out for a sports team. You know, so I go, and I think I shot 81-78 or something. And we did Syracuse, and that was a great team. We only had a couple of guys that were, you know, one, two handicaps. And uh, I'm going to be number six man. They were taking seven or eight. I'm all excited. And then I go to register for my classes guy, and I was in, in landscape architecture, which is the division of architecture. And uh, site engineering class was Tuesdays, Thursdays from 2 to 4. Design studio was from 2 to 5 or 1 to 4, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we're supposed to practice every afternoon. And I said, well, can I get the class in the morning? No, that's the only time the class is offered. That's when you have to take it. So I go to this little tiny room guy, little tiny office, 10 by 10, where Bayheim was. I'm sure his office is a lot bigger now. And I say, you know, hey, coach, you know, I can't be on the, you know, on the team. He didn't even have the piece, grab the piece of paper. Oh, yeah, you did pretty well. He, he says to me, change majors. <laughs> I say, I, I have a better chance of being a golf architect than being on the PGA Tour. So I think I, uh, I, I won't change. Which ended up because, because I never played varsity and never got a varsity letter. I was able to play intramurals, which I won twice in the next few years, and our team won the, you know, the the, the team intramurals thing a few times. So whatever, probably wasn't fair. See Bayham, when I see Bayham, I've been watching. I bleed orange, uh-huh. uh, and I bleed a little bit of green because, as you know, I went to Michigan State and turf grass. Uh, so I root for both, and I root for Rutgers. I've been teaching that for so long, but I think most people tend to bleed. Or root more for the team, the college they went to first, their undergraduate program. So I, I root for Syracuse the most. And uh, I've been watching Bayheim for so many years now, I tend to not even think back to that time. I mean, I could watch a whole game and not even think back when he was the coach. And, you know, I ran, in, I was around him probably only four, three to four times during that time that I was 
so called on the freshman team. <laughs> because we had matches, guy, we had matches and and we got snowed out of the matches. Because you wake up in the fifty degrees, you wake up in the morning, it's two inches of snow, the matches canceled. You gotta realize that when Bayhai became, you know, the head basketball coach in whatever year that was, seventy six, seventy seven, seventy eight, I don't know what year. But one of those years. He could not be the golf coach now because now he's full time head basketball coach. Did you know what Syracuse did? Instead of replacing him, Syracuse dropped the golf team. Syracuse does not have a golf team. And Syracuse is a big school. <laughs> you know? They don't have a golf team. Well, there's no season. How glad are you that you didn't take his advice and change majors? No, I didn't take his advice. No. <laughs> I, you, know, I, you know, I was a half piece of golf. I was a great. The best I ever was was a five handicap. So, uh, you know, PGA Tour was, uh, <laughs> was like 12 was about 12 strokes away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think about it, you, you got a degree in landscape architecture and turf grass management. How glad are you that you studied both fields like that? And how has that help, helped you throughout the course of your career? Well, well the, re- the reason I did that was I had, while I was at Syracuse in landscape architecture, I worked at the Concord Hotel on the maintenance crew for three summers. And I realized to be the best golf architect I could be, I should uh, know more about turf. And I did not know about the Rutgers turf program at the time. So I followed a friend who was a little bit older, and he went a year before me. He had gone to uh, to Michigan State. So that's why I went to Michigan State. And then I ended up staying in Michigan for 10 years. I was a growing superintendent. I worked for a small golf construction company. And I worked with an architect by the name of Bill Newcomb, who was the first guy to ever work with Pete Dye. So actually, if you look at that Sports Illustrated, you know, article they did many years ago with the trees, they had a Donald Ross family tree and a, I think a, a, a and a maybe a Robert Trent Jones tree and a Pete Dye tree. I'm on the Pete Dye family tree, you know, for, for golf architecture. You know, we've done close to 70 Tartan Talks now. This is the first time that Bill Newcomb's name has ever come up in one of these podcasts. What can you tell our listeners about him? Well, well of, of all the golf architects you're talking about, other, other than somebody like Jack Nicholas, you know, or Ben Crenshaw, but of, of the people on the Pete Dye tree, uh, Bill Newcomb probably was the best golfer. Uh, Bill Newcomb uh, walked on, you know, made the Michigan golf team back when Nicholas was playing for Ohio State. Newcomb actually tried to walk on. He was a tremendous athlete. He's still alive. I actually spoke to him a few months ago. He's 81 years old now. He almost made the Michigan basketball team. Michigan basketball team. He was the last one to be cut. Almost made the team. He was a tremendous athlete. Bill Newcomb won the Michigan Amateur, won the Indiana Open quarterfinals, U.S. Amateur, and in those days, a certain tournament did it by points. He didn't necessarily have to win things. He did, he did it by points and stuff. Bill Newcomb played in the Masters. That's how good Bill Newcomb was. And he was a good designer. Mm-hmm. He was a good designer, but, but he was in that, if I may, I don't, I don't, I don't use this in, in, in any way being negative. Bill Newcomb, in those days, just got to realize this was in the late 70s, early 80s, when I worked with Bill, architecture was different, and it was, you know, maybe you just think more about Robert Trent Jones and Jeffrey Cornish and that stuff, and and being a little crazy really didn't get going until Pete Dye. Even though he had been with Pete Dye, 
Bill Newsom was much more conservative in his design, at least when I was working with him. I really don't know much about what he did after I was with him. What were some golf courses that inspired you? Were there any courses you played as a child or in college or early in your career that really pushed you in the direction that you went? No, what pushed me in the direction was I was a half-decent athlete in the neighborhood. I was normally you know, the captain of the team and was one of the better guys in the neighborhood, that three or four block. And then you quickly find out how when you get to high school and you get to college, how you know, you're okay as an athlete, but you're not. But there's a lot better people, <laughs> you know. You know, you might be the best in that group of 25 kids, but, you, you know, you're not number one. <laughs> so, but I loved sports. And I started playing golf, and I got good very quickly without lessons. You know, the first year I played golf, I was 14, and I shot 150 or something. And I'm sure that wasn't honest my first round. My last round, and that might not have been super honest, but it was pretty honest. I shot 79 on a regulation golf course. I got good quick, made the high school golf team. And it was my freshman, my sophomore year of high school. I was sketching golf holes. I was already with teacher's board. Or oh, what if you put a sand bunker there? What would you do there? I was good in science guy. I was good in math. And I was good in art. Uh, was not really good in English. And uh, then I read the, the, the famous two-part article that Herbert Warren Wynn wrote in 1966, about uh, golf course architecture, understanding golf course architecture. Two-part article, I think it was October, November of 1966. And when I finished part two, I just said, that's it. I said a prayer to, to the good Lord. I said, God, please let me become a golf course architect. So at that point, I became, I guess you could use the word obsessed with it, with becoming a golf architect. I did not play any good golf course. I was playing New York City golf courses playing Clearview and Christina and Douglasville. And my uncle, who was a New York City cop, who was a very good player, the three handicap, he won the police championship flight two or three times. He would take me out to Bethpage and occasionally to some other golf courses, Crab Meadow. Uh, and I would go out to those golf courses and couldn't wait. Always loved going to a golf course I never played before. It was exciting. You know, thank God, God, yeah, I don't think I ever thought of this. You know, the Scots could have said the first hole is this lane. It's straight, and there's a bunker on the left. And the second hole is a little dog leg to the right. It's 10 yards longer, and there's a bunker on the, on the right in the fairway and the left of the green. And then the third hole is this. And they could have decided that, and then every golf course would be the same. But they didn't do that, thank God. <laughs> so, you know. Do you give that Herbert Warren Wynn article to your students? Uh, I do not, although uh, uh, an ex-associate of mine for one of my birthdays or Christmas, I forgot what he did. He took part one and he framed it for me, the different pages. So I have that on my wall in my office that's framed. Uh, I actually don't have part two framed. I have, I have part two there, but I've never uh, framed it. I, I have not given that to my students, no. If any of our listeners are wondering who Herbert Warren Wynn was, just Google his name and get some of his work because he's the goat of golf writers. Yes, and, and let me say this. When I came back to New York, where I grew up, and uh, I was a New York City kid, and when I came back to New York to start my business in 83, and I don't remember if it was the first MGA meeting I went to in 83 or the second one in 84, but Herbert Warren Wynn was there. And I, I, I kept trying to find him, you know, 500 people at those things or whatever it is. And I saw him 
Uh, I knew what he looked like, and I saw him leaving. He was putting his coat on, leaving. There was a little snowstorm going on outside. I quickly went over to him, told him, no, a young golf architect, all because of his article. And he said, well, just look me up. My phone number is listed. The phone number is at the New Yorker, and you can come meet me there. And literally in a couple of weeks, I went and met him over Christmas time. Uh, I went and met him. He was an unbelievable gentleman. He looked at pictures I had, and we talked for about an hour. Uh, and, and that was that was great, and it was very motivational, and it was very interesting. He thought he was as good that he wrote a lot about. He told me tennis, and that he thought he wrote as much good stuff about tennis as he did in golf. And I never knew that. And I'll be honest; I never went and read any stuff that he wrote about tennis because you know, I'm not into tennis that much. That's quite a story. I, w- I would have been starstruck. <laughs> Given my, my line of work, well, but I, I probably, I probably was. We don't talk a lot about the 1980s and the golf course architecture and the projects that were being done in that decade on this podcast. Describe starting your firm in 1983 and what type of work was out there at that time. It's interesting you you, you bring that up because it, 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 there's actually a lot to this story in the whole thing, uh, and I'm going to try to summarize it somewhat quickly. Uh, and I just want to say this. Back in the, the New Jersey Expo, which is a superintendent and athletic field turf conference that they have in New Jersey, the New Jersey Expo, which is in December, I was the speaker at the 2019 one, which was it's in December 2019, right before COVID started. And they asked me to talk about a little bit of the history of bunkers and the history of trees. And there's actually a little bit that relates to answering your question. In, when I worked with Bill Newcomb, uh, there wasn't that much talk, really, in the late 70s and early 80s about restoration. Uh, when I was working with him, I was really studying, uh, getting any anything I could get on golf course architecture. I was reading. It was then when I worked with him that I found George Thomas's book, uh, Golf Course Architecture in America. I went through that and all the photographs, great photographs. You know, and that book is copyrighted in 1927. So any any of those photographs are, you know, 1927 or older. And if you look at those, a lot of those pictures were, were courtesy of the architect. So, it, God, let's say you were going to write a book, Guy, and you asked me for, for, say, three or four examples of my work. Do you think I would send you something that was blah, or would I send you something that I thought was really nice looking? You would go go for what you thought was the best. Right, right, exactly right. So these, here were, the, I think there's five or six pictures of Donald Ross's work. Three or four of them were courtesy of Donald Ross. And the photographs that he handed in all, by the way, had flashed bunker sand. Sand was flashed, which they called faced in those days. Now we call it flashed, which is interesting because in the 90s, everybody seemed to think that Donald Ross did grass down everywhere. You know, and he did. He really flashed a lot of sand. Uh, and, and that, sadly, was an article that was written that, People interpreted that that bunkers were edged by the maintenance crew, and that's why how sand got flashed up. And it wasn't. That's how, in some cases, it was. But in a lot of cases, it was just, most cases, the architects just flashed sand. And most architects did everything. They flashed sand or grass down. They they did all that stuff. But anyway, in the in the late seventies, eighties, and even into the early nineties, not many people were talking about restoration. When I started my business in New York in the mid-'80s and I started doing work clubs, I very much I cared about who the architect was. I always wanted to know who the architect was. I always studied as much as I could about him. 
But in those days, they were hugging trees. They were not cutting down trees. Trees really didn't start getting planted. They guessed there was trees planted in the 50s and the early 60s, but it didn't start until the mid-60s with Lady Bird Johnson's original thing to get the billboards off the interstate, Beautify America. And when the billboards all got off the interstate, uh, you still you see billboards on the interstate now, but they're off the property of the interstate. They used to guy, not sure how old you are, I don't think you're as old as me, they, they were on the interstate, and the federal government was renting land for them. And then they stopped because of Lady Bird Johnson and her initiative, and they took them off, and now the billboards are, are actually off the property. They're there. You see them. But then she took that and parlayed that into more beautifying America, and there used to be things in magazines, light magazines, Beautify America, and your older listeners will remember this, Beautify America, Plant a Tree. So golf courses and bunkers were hazards. They weren't these pristine things we can maintain things we have today. So they were just, basically, they started planting trees. And at the same time, Guy, I'm sure you've seen it. Remember Shell Wonderful World, the golf that they had at Pine Valley? Oh, yeah. Uh, Byron Nelson against Gene Littler, I believe. Right, right, right. And and it was Jimmy, if I remember the host, the narrators, was Gene Saracen and Jimmy DeMaris, if I remember correctly. And they talked about Pine Valley. But again, people don't realize, you know, Pine Valley, you know, whatever it is, three, four, five hundred, six hundred acres, it's on a big piece of property. And how, oh, it's so nice. Every hole is by itself, you know, with trees on both sides, and you don't see another golf hole. Well, when I worked with Bill Newcomb and I started my own business, people were doing, people weren't rebuilding bunkers. They were doing tree planting plants. You know, we got to make each hole look the same. You know, we need to make, each whole lot looks the same. Be, I said the wrong thing. Be in and of itself, you know, so you don't see another golf hole. You don't see golfers on another hole. Each hole is its own entity. So, and, and with, with the combination of all this pushing advertising-wise of beautiful America plant the tree, not bunkers, not being pristine, and nonprofit clubs, they can't, if you know tax laws, nonprofit clubs can't spend their profit. They have to put it back into the clubs. So what were they doing? They were putting it back in planting trees. That's a capital improvement. So clubs were just planting trees, planting trees, planting trees from the mid-1960s through to about the mid-1980s. And then they started realizing these trees grow and shade and roots don't go with turf. So now it was, it was pulling teeth to try to get a member, a club, especially a private club, to cut down trees. I mean, just hard. So... So that was happening. Bunkers didn't start getting totally rebuilt and commitment to rebuild all the bunkers at a club, whether a one-year project or a three-year project, until I found and I, to, to do that talk I did, I spoke to Bobby Jones, I spoke to Clyde Johnson, spoke to Bob Lohman, I spoke to, you know, if I may, older golf architects who, who that was their beginning of their careers. I talked to them about it. I talked to Ron Witten about it. What did he remember? And most people, to, and I like round numbers, basically 1990. 90, I would, you do a bunker here, you do a bunker there, maybe a couple bunkers on a couple of holes that were in bad shape. But for a club to commit to doing a total bunker renovation, that really didn't happen until about 1990. So now, and basically because they, they look so good on TV and, and all that stuff, so clubs were now, but these bunkers were 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. So now we're restarting to rebuild bunkers, and then finally, thank God, 
around the late 1990s, say 2000, again, for a round number, Oakmont and then Wingfoot start taking down trees. And the Oakmont taking down trees and Wingfoot taking down trees sort of gave permission to the golf industry that it's okay to take down trees. So then it became a little less hard to convince members to take down trees. But I will tell you, you still have clubs, you still have places where it's very difficult to take down trees. And it's hard. Well, so, so they weren't, so restoration and taking down trees and, and doing all this type of restoration you're getting today over the last 10 years where golf courses are wholesale, taking down the majority of their trees. I did that at the Sea Wine Club in 02, 03, 04, and 05. We took down 95% of the trees. But you still have, you, you, you know, Wingfoot still has a lot of trees, but you take, get, you get clubs like Aronimic and other clubs that just took down 90% of the trees and opened up all these vistas. I did that at the Union League of Torsdale. We opened up all the vistas. So from the clubhouse, you could see out on the golf course. From the golf course, you could see the beautiful old-fashioned clubhouse. That did not happen, Guy, until after the year 2000. So all of the younger architects today, that's all they know of, is that you do that, and, you know, you know well, why didn't, why didn't Reese Jones or Stephen Kay or Jeffrey Corners do that, you know, in 1995? Because the clubs weren't allowing us to. They wouldn't let us do that. You know, hey, that tree was planted for my grandmother. You can't take that down. <laughs> I, I never knew when I was walking through Lady Bird Johnson Grove in Redwood National Park last September that her name would come up on a Tartan Talks podcast. Well, there you go. <laughs> and I've never heard uh, planting trees as a capital improvement, too. Usually it's taking the trees down as a capital improvement. Well, that's now. Yep. That's now. That's now. If I could go back in a time machine, a la uh, Marty McFly and Back to the Future, I could save clubs a lot of money because it was only 50 bucks to plant the tree, but now it's like two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 to take the stupid thing down. <laughs> you know? But we need to take it down. But I'm going to say this. People got to be very careful. I, wanna say, I do a lot of expert witness. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you where this next story is because I signed a non-disclosure. So I was asked, I go, hey, I'm a teacher at Rutgers. you got to tell me what I can say, what I can't say. I'm all I'm allowed to say that this happened on the East Coast, somewhere in the east of the Mississippi. Happened east of the Mississippi. A club was taking down a lot of trees. I, I had nothing to do with this. I was called in as an expert witness. They ended up settling out of court for a lot of money. They take down all these trees, and on this one hole, two, two holes parallel to each other, a guy was on the tee. And there had been had been a large oak tree or maple to the right, and the new the other golf hole was to the right, meaning a golfer on the other golf hole. It's a slice shot to come into this tee. They took the trees down. This guy gets hit on his right eyebrow. He on a fly loses his eye and caused a little bit of he lost a little bit of his mental ability. Can't do his job anymore. He's in the 30s with two, three little kids. All I can, I can't say what golf was. They settled for a lot of money. Their insurance company had a big problem with this, that they created the safety problem. Uh, I'm going to say to people who want to take down a lot of trees, I have no problem. I love to take down trees. Trees and turf don't get along. I was, I was a, a super tenant. I understand. But, but if there's a safety situation... You really have to think about it. 
And just for your insurance purposes, if you're going to take down a big tree like that, go, oh, it's shade and roots, you know, and all that, well, then you better plant, plant something else near it where you took it down very quickly. So at least you could say to the judge, hey, the tree was dying, the tree was old, the tree was this, the tree was that, but we made an attempt for safety because we planted something in, in to replace it. Uh, they, clubs have to be very careful, safety-wise, in taking down all these trees. I think there could potentially be a lot of legal problems in the next few years with trees that came down. That's a w- wonderful point and leads to my next question, Stephen. When a club comes to you and is thinking of doing a project where do you start with the trees? How do you get the process going to think about what trees need to stay and what trees need to go? Uh, where, where does a tree management plan start when you're involved? Well, well I, I, I back in the here, – here, here, here's the case. There, there was a golf course in New York that I – in the New York area. Many years ago, I did a master plan for it. We did work. And actually, somebody on that golf club atlas wrote, oh, why would you hire Stephen Kay? He didn't take down trees there. Well, we took down seven trees, but if you looked at my original, not the final master plan, my original set of drawings, the first meeting, after we went around the golf course twice, uh, played it, and then I sat down and showed him my first set of ideas, I was taking down a guy over 400 trees. But this club in the mid mid to late 1990s was just tree-hugging everything. And they only allowed me to take down a tree that was from the center to the back of the green, that caused shade. That was it. I tried to convince them, and I try. I had trees marked. To me, Donald Ross, I think, wrote, I'm pretty sure it's in golf, never failed me that Ron Witten helped edit. Rob, uh, Donald Ross wrote that if you're in the fairway, by the way, in golf, we have a lot of words. We have a word rough. Well, you can have a rough surface. You can have a rough day. We have the word green for a green. Well, I got green eyes, or you'd be wearing... Uh, you have a green car, whatever. But the word fairway is only in golf. And it's the combining of two words. It's the fair way to get to the green. And Donna Ross basically wrote that if you're in the fairway, you should have a straight shot to at least the middle of the green. So at, at this particular golf course, there were trees that came out that you had to hit hard draws or hard fades around if you were in the fairway, almost in the center of the fairway on a couple of holes, just to get to the green. And they would not let me take these trees down. Today, that would be a lot easier. So I basically attack it first agronomically, and then I attack it that if I'm in my fairway, I should have a free shot to the green. You know, that the fairway's good, the rough is bad. If I'm in the fairway, I shouldn't be penalized for being in the fairway. You know, so that's how I try to attack it, and because so many famous clubs have taken down so many trees, uh, it is a lot easier. I've been doing work for many years now at the Cherry Valley Club in Garden City, Long Island, and we have taken down a tremendous amount of trees over the years and just opened the whole thing up, and the only few trees that we're leaving are trees for safety. And, and it's very few. I mean, we've taken down 75 to, to 85% of the trees have come down over the last 10 years. But how do you handle it when you make a recommendation to, to the club and they don't do what you recommend? Just mentally, how do you handle that when that situation comes up? Well, well it, 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 it's hard. 
Uh, I lear- I've learned my lesson over the years that sometimes when I get interviewed, if I could sense that they're not going to want to do something, if I go around and see the whole golf list, I know what they have to do, and, and they're not, they're not going to listen, I, I'll walk away from the job. Because many years ago, I was doing work in the New England area, and I really pushed to get some trees down on the golf course, and they wouldn't. A few years later, I got interviewed by another club in that area. And it looked like from the super tennis point of view that I was going to get hired of these five architects. They, they, they hired. And then I found out I didn't get it. And the reason I didn't get it, and the green, I called the green chairman. I said, how come? I thought I was going to get it. So I thought you were going to get it, too. I like you the best in the interview. But I went and saw the work that you did there. And if you were not strong enough to convince them to cut those trees down at that other club, then you're not our guy. Because I agree with you. He said, Stephen, we got to cut all these trees down. But I have all these older tree huggers at this golf club, and you got to be very strong. And because you didn't get those trees cut down at that club, we're not hiring you. Since that happened to me, guy, I if 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 I really feel something has to happen, and I could tell that that they're not going to do that, I'll walk away from the job. Well, speaking of jobs that you did not walk away from, the Architects Golf Club in New Jersey turned 20 years old in 2021. I know that's- that's not possible, is it? Yeah, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, explain the concept for the, the course and ha- how that came about and what was that project like for you. Ooh. Okay, well, first let me say the concept and then how it came about might surprise you. Uh, the, the concept of that golf course, it's 18 architects, golf course architects, uh, in chronological order doing their design style. Uh, so it's starts with old Tom Morris, 1885, and it goes to Robert Trenchone Sr.'s style of 1955, mid-50s. And it goes basically, basically in chronological order with, you know, 18 famous architects of the golden age of golf design. Uh, so it's a museum of golf architecture. And by the way, and I got to give kudos to Jeff Brower in Texas, because I'm not a golf club atlas guy, but I guess one day while we were building the golf course, and the word got out we were doing this. Oh, how ridiculous Stephen Kay is doing this thing, and you know, or, you know, this. They they thought I was copying golf balls, and by the way, we did not copy those. We did their styles. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Jeffrey Brower said Stephen. Uh, I guess he followed. He got into some chat, and he said, "Guys, Stephen Kay could have done his own design. You guys love the old architects. Steve is doing something in homage." to them, to, to uh, tribute to these guys, so people learn about golf course architecture. Why are you being so ready? I haven't even seen You know, it's under construction. Why are you being so critical? And I guess guys wrote it, oh, you're right. We're, you know, maybe we should wait to see what it is. So I thank you, Jeffrey, <laughs> you know, for, 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 for saying that. Uh, and now what we did is uh, we brought in Ron Witten uh, as, the, uh, as a, what we call the design consultant. And, and he, a historical, historical design consultant, that was, that was his title. Because he had a plethora of photographs, more than I had. I had a lot of good photographs, which I'm going to answer a lot. Pete Devereaux had it. People did work out here on the East Coast, but I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of, 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 of George Thomas. I didn't have a lot of, of Perry Maxwell. You know, I didn't have some of those guys that we were going to use. So he came in as a consultant. Uh, what we did is, is how did these guys tend to set up a hole? Did they set it up strategically? Did they tend to be penal? Did they tend to not do either of those? How did they tend to design a golf ball from key to green? And then what was their style of their bunkers, and how did they tend to contour their greens? 
Okay, and and that's what we did. By the way, guy, have you been there? No, it's on my list of places to see, though. Uh, okay, okay. So when you go there, you got to make make sure you ask for the yardage book. They used to give it out for free. I don't know why they still they don't they don't anymore. But that it, it goes. It gives you like three examples of courses they did. You know, uh, Donald Ross will give you Siwanoi, uh, Oakland Hills, you know, Pinehurst. Uh, and it'll give you a list, and it'll tell you something about their life and something of, and when they lived and, and their style, what their style was like. So I did it as, as a museum of golf course architecture. And that word museum now leads to how I came up with the idea. That's when, I was working, when I was working with Bill Newcomb in Michigan, one of the last things I did was help him route the Donald Ross Memorial Golf Course. Uh, for Boyne Mountain, for Boyne Highlands Golf Club up in northern Michigan. And uh, so I'm laying out the Donald Ross Memorial. The Donald Ross was picking uh, the owner of the Boyne Resorts. Uh, uh, brought to lunch one day a golf digest that had a list of the top 100, and he had highlighted in a yellow marker that there was you know, 12, 13, or 14 golf courses with Donald Ross. He was a member of one or two of the courses uh, in the country, and he says, why don't we pick the best 18 Donald Ross holes and copy them, which is what they theoretically did. I had already left him. I was only involved in the routing of it. So I was doing that routing. At the time that at lunch, my mother called me. Now, my mother was an executive secretary for IMP. Do you know who IMP is? No. All right. Do you know the Louvre, the pyramid at the Louvre? Yes, I've heard of that, yeah. In Paris. Uh, Kennedy Library in Boston, the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. They were all designed by the famous architect, building architect, IMP. So my mother, by the way, always wanted me to be a building architect, an architect, like Frank Lloyd Wright, like IMP. And when I told her when I was 15 years old that I wanted to be a golf architect, on her face I could see a little bit of disappointment, and then about 30 to 60 seconds later, she said, well, at least it has the word architect in it, <laughs> which is sort of cute. Anyway, so my mother calls me at lunch, and she was all excited that the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art in New York City was holding an exhibition uh, in a month or two of the top you know, dozen architects of the 20th century, living or dead. And Frank Lloyd Wright was obviously the main one of them, Philip Johnson. Uh, and I am pay, you know, and my mother was really excited because she didn't get to go. She was invited to the grand opening and go to Bloomingdale's and get a gown or whatever, you know, and here they were going to have this, all these pictures and thing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art of the top dozen architects of the 20th century. And I remember hanging up from her and going back to the drafting table and said, boy, wouldn't that be neat if they, if they had, and this is how it all started. And I was thinking that wouldn't that be neat if they did that? For golf architecture, you know, Donald Ross and Tony Hans and Deborah, I mean, George Thomas and, you know, Willie Park, Jr., and all, all these great guys. And, and then I thought, who would go into Manhattan to see those? You know, who would really want to go see that in Manhattan? And then I thought, well, you know what? You could see a picture of the Guggenheim Museum, and you go, wow, look at that. That's interesting. You could see a picture of Frank Lloyd Wright's, you know, falling waters and go, wow, look at that outside of Pittsburgh. But golf, you gotta play it. You gotta play it. You gotta participate in it, not just look at it. That's part of the whole experience.
experience. And yes, it's part of an experience to be in a building, but a lot of it is just seeing it from the outside. And I thought, wouldn't that be great if somebody built golf holes that were in the style of famous architects? So I came up with that idea, by the way, in 1983 when I was working with Bill Nickel. I bounced that idea of doing this idea of, we didn't know what we were going to call it, you know, the Legends or, you know, Architects Club, whatever. You know, uh, some people said, joked and said it should be the, you know, the, the Dead Architects Golf Club, you know, like Dead Old Society, you know. Some people thought I should be the 18th hole my style, which I didn't want to do that. You know, I'm still alive here. So I bounced it off all my clients. They all thought it was stupid and crazy until the guys that did the the, the uh, Architects Club, which was the, the Turco family, who were actually golf contractors. They were the ones that went with it. And by the way, the Architects Club is probably one of the most profitable daily fees in the state of New Jersey. So uh, some of those other people who said no to that idea you know, shaking their heads now. <laughs> so that's how the idea came up with my mother working for IMPEG. <laughs> that's a remarkable story. You know, I, I started caddying at a course in Pittsburgh called Shark Tears Country Club in the mid-1990s, and we never talked about who the architect of the golf course was. It turns out it's a, it's a Willie Park Jr. design. When, when did it start to matter to people who designed the golf course? What period did you realize that there was going to be this renewed interest in these architects? Very good, very good, very good question. Mm-hmm. According to historians, mm-hmm. supposedly, there was a little interest in the, with the golf people mm-hmm. uh, in the 20s and the early 30s when golf was booming during that boom mm-hmm. that people did seem to be interested in, you know, in Trent Jones and Tony Hans and all that. So how did they get so many jobs if it wasn't for word of mouth? I mean, it wasn't the Internet. It wasn't, you know, Facebook and social media, you know. How, how were these people learning about it? You know, there were articles written. You know, these guys, like, you know, you see that the little advertising, little quarter-page advertising by, by people like Tony Hanson in some golf magazines. But stop. Basically stop. Trent Jones had it own. Popular Trent Jones Sr. was at Johnny Carson show in the in the late 1960s or, or early 1970s, uh, and he had he was the first one to use the term a signature design. So so he did a little bit, but what most people say was actually Ron Whitten starting to write about golf course architecture in Golf Digest magazine with one of the first big things he wrote about was about Pete Dye. And writing about Pete Dye and how Pete Dye was breaking the mold and he was doing different stuff. And, and it, it, that article, and I'm not really sure, was it a separate article or was there two articles I'm thinking? Or was it one? I've been reading about Pete Dye and TPC Sawgrass. Uh, whether it was one or two, uh, it probably was just one, like you say. Uh, but I think that's when it started. And then. And then, when when Ron Witten finally convinced Gob Digest, you should interview him on this. <laughs> this is probably just a podcast and stuff on that. But when he had the first armchair architects competition, 1985 or 1986, one of those two years. And I remember I had just started my business, was only business for a couple of years, but I could see I was going to make it. I was getting jobs. Things were happening, you know, each year's. 
making a little bit more money. But it was tough. My first year, I, I you know, I, I netted or grossed four thousand dollars. My first year. Second year was eleven thousand dollars. So it was working a hundred hours a week and typing because I didn't even have a computer and a word processor yet. And if I typed something wrong, I'd retype the whole thing. You know, so so I wasn't mailing it to somebody with an error in it. You know. Anyway, uh, uh, he. I remember getting the magazine. Thought they were going to have the winner of it, and I couldn't participate. In golf market. It wasn't open to golf architects. It said in the article. You remember it? He wrote it. They they. They were not ready. They did not have the winner yet. It was taking too long to go through the entries to to announce the winner, and it was going to be a couple of months away. And that when Ron Witten convinced the Golf Digest to do it and the marketing people, because you had to mail in $10, and they mailed you a blueprint to do the drawing on for the Internet. And if we get five to 600 entries, this will be a success and we'll be amazed. That's what the marketing company said. Do you know how many they got? Way more than they expected, right? What, 20,000. 20, yeah. From five, 500, 600, they got 20,000. And he quoted letters that doctors, lawyers, priests wrote in how they would give up their careers to be a novel architect. And I am in a McDonald's reading this, starting to cry. I'm getting choked up right now. <laughs> All right? Uh, you know, that, that, you know, I did what I was dreaming of doing at 15 years old. And, and I still have that passion, and I think most golf architects do, especially if they wanted to do it from a teenage years. Some people got into golf architecture accidentally. You know, they got hired, you know, because they knew AutoCAD or something, and they got into it as a job rather than a passion. You know, that doesn't say that I'm not saying whether they're good or bad because of that, but there are golf architects that got into it with never having the thought to get into it. It just sort of happened. But then there are us, there are a few that dreamed of it since we were a teenager. Forrest Richardson is one of those. He dreamed of it since he was, what, 12 years old or whatever. You know, I did it 15. Well, I'm with you, Stephen. I'm living the dream, too. When I was 16, I decided that I wanted to be a, a golf writer, and it's quite a journey to, to get to your dream. This is the last question. Well, congratulations. congratulations. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, now I'm a podcaster, tweeter, Facebook poster, writer, uh, newsletter aggregator. The, just like golf course architecture, you know, golf media has changed. But the last thing here, just how rewarding has it been for you to be able to, to do what you've done for such a long period of time now? Yeah, it is a long time. <laughs> it, no, it's tr tremendously awarding. It, it, it's not, uh, I'm going to say, anytime you live your dream, and I'm sure it's the same, you know, you, let's say you want to be an actor or an actress or, or you know, or something, and you you make it in, in the profession that's hard. Uh, Michael Herzen once wrote, the chance of becoming a golf architect is probably harder than, than a chance of getting hit by lightning how true that is, but regardless. In any of these professions where, you know, you're sort of living your dream, uh, may make 10%, you know, dream world. I mean, sometimes I'm chasing checks. You know, sometimes I we back in the 90s when golf was booming, there were people, you know, developing companies, getting options on land. Uh, you know, I'm doing designs, and then they screw you and they declare bankruptcy, and you're never going to get the money. You know, only Uncle Sam or the lawyers are going to get any money. 
you know, so you, so you get screwed out of stuff, chasing money. So, you know, you have that negativeness of it. And it's, I'm sure it's the same. You're, you're a Major League Baseball player. You love playing for the Yankees or whatever team, and then they and then they trade you, you know. <laughs> you know, and now you're somewhere else. And it's the same, I'm sure, with being a writer. You know, you're writing for somebody you love to write for, and then next thing you know, the magazine closes, especially what's happening with, with, with printed media today. Uh, but it's great. I love it. I love what I could do. I thank the good Lord every morning that I'm doing what I wanted to do as a kid. So. And I could still get emotional about it. Well, Stephen, I can certainly hear the passion. And this was quite the conversation. It's the first time ever that Jim Beheim, Herbert Warren Wynn, and Lady Bird Johnson have probably been brought up in the same podcast. So I got I to gotta give you credit for all the different directions we went. Uh, thank you for taking so much time here. And it was a lot of fun chatting with you. And uh, keep in touch. Thank you very much, Guy.